Father, uh, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you allow us to be here. I pray that um, you would speak to your people. God, that you would encourage them, that you would humble us, that you would guide us and instruct us. Um, We trust that you work and that you will work today. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen. Morning. Well, today we are going to be talking about the life of faith, the life of faith. And I want to open up our uh, our time today by asking a question. Um, if you were to die tonight, something happens. If you were to die tonight and you were to go and you were to meet God and he were to ask you, um, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I allow you to enter in? What would you say? What would you say? And so... I want to look at some answers that we hear um, and talk about, because this is a really important question. Uh, a lot of times people enter in sharing the gospel and talk about this, but the reason this question is really important is because it reveals where our trust is at. It reveals where our heart is and what we think um, will, will get us where we want to go. So some people say, well, yes, God will let me in because I've been a good person. Right? Yes, of course, God will let me enter into heaven because I have been a good person and my good ultimately outweighs my bad. Right? So you have a lot of people that will say that. Others will say, yes, of course, God will let me into heaven because I've tried, I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Others will say, yes, because I believe in God and I try to do his will. So I believe in God and I try to do his will. Uh, and others say, yes, because I believe in God with all my heart. I believe in God with all of my heart. Or E. None of the above. So I want you to, I want you to be asking yourself this question. What would, what would you say if I were, if we were alone, there wasn't a big crowd, and I were to come up to you and I were to ask you this question? What would you say? Because I'm, I'm sure most of the time, most of us tend towards one of these responses. Um, and, and I hope you see, because when I first read this, I thought, oh, this seems kind of like a wordplay. It seems kind of like just tricky on the words. But actually, the point is that each one of these, the wording reveals where our heart is at, an attitude in our heart, where our trust is found. And so I'm going to read our passage for today. And as we get into our passage, we're going to answer this question. We're going to look at this. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Romans chapter 4? And we're going to be in Romans. In Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25. So we're going to take a large, a large chunk of scripture today. Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for 
for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's a long and very important and weighty passage. So if there is a big idea, if there's one thing that I want you to take away from this passage from our time today, it's this. It's that faith, faith is the means of being made right with God. Faith is the means, it's the instrument, it's the the highway of what it does to, to be made right with God. So if you're not a Christian, one, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I'm thankful. Um, I hope that as we journey in our passage today, that um, you might ask, what is faith? So if you're not a Christian, what is faith? And where do you find your faith in? Where do you put your faith in? Because you see, all of us, all of us have assumptions. We have things that we think are, are true that we can't prove, but we put our faith in them. And so I would ask, examine, where do you put your faith in and why? Where do you put your faith in and why? And that I hope that as we journey that you will consider the claims of Christianity and that you will look at Jesus and that you will consider putting your faith in him. Consider putting your trust in him.
Now, for us, uh, for those of us that, that believe in Christ, that, that consider ourselves Christians, I hope that as we journey that this will help clarify what faith is. Because often we are confused and often we, um, we, we get jumbled ideas about what faith is. And so I, I hope that we get clear about what faith is, about its role in our lives, and that this will help us better see where or who we have faith in. What does it mean for our lives to be marked by faith? Right? What does it mean for our lives to be marked by faith? And so to understand where we are, we need to understand where we've been. And so the book of Romans is broken up. We've, we've talked about it before, but the, the five or six S's. So we've just spent you know, about a month talking about sin. Right? We've talked about sin, that it, its power holds us bondage, that it comes forth from our heart. We, we finished in Romans 3, 9 through 20, talking about that no one is good, no one sees God, that our problem is that our heart is sick and that we, we need a new heart. And so we've just talked about sin, and Paul is making a switch now. Pastor Colin talked last week, and he switched in verse 21, and he, starts to, he says, but now, signaling there's a change, and he says, but now there is something new, since we can't be saved by doing good works because our heart is evil. God has provided a new way, right? A righteousness apart from works, right? Revealed in Jesus. And so salvation, what we're going to be talking about for the next month or so is, is, is talking about salvation. Is how are we saved? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to live a life that demonstrates this salvation? Um, and so the passage last week, just a real quick rebrief is he talked about that God is both just and the justifier. And what that means is it means that God punishes sin. God is a good judge and that he punishes sin. He doesn't let sin go unpunished. But it also means that God is a justifier, right? Is that God comes and for those that are guilty, he credits them something. He gives them something so that they can be justified. He excuses and lets them go, right? And so we see this, this mixture of how is it that God can be just, yet God can be merciful and, and, and show mercy. Um, and the results of believing this, the results of believing that God is just and the justifier it means that we can't boast. When we understand that we're saved by grace, Paul is very clear. You can't boast. You can't stand up and say, well, I've done these things or I've done this. And so it humbles you. No boasting, right? It also means that God is the God of all, right? God is the God of all, all people, right? He's not just the God of those who work hard of the Jews, but he's also the God of the Jews and the Gentiles of all people. Um, and this is a big one. Obedience follows faith. It doesn't precede it. Right? Obedience comes after faith. It doesn't precede it. Because what you hear a lot, and I hear a lot too, is people say, well, listen, I, once I get good, then I'll come to church. Right? Have you ever heard? I mean, I hear that all the time. Like, man, I just need to get my life right, and then I'll come to church. That whole idea is based off the idea that, like, what needs to precede faith is obedience. Listen, you're never going to be obedient before you put faith, because faith is a catalyst for obedience. Faith is what stems our desire to even want to obey God. And so faith is the predecessor to obedience, right? And that's what this passage last week talked about. And, and why this is important is because all of chapter four, all of chapter four is basically just illustrating last week. It's just as illustrating and showing what was talked about last week. And so we need to understand that these themes are now flushed out in this chapter. Okay. Now remember, faith is the means of being made right with God. This is our big idea. Faith is the means of being made right with God. So, looking at our passage, it breaks down into, into uh, three sections. The first one is the priority of faith, 
right, in verses 1 through 17, uh, about A, it's the priority of faith. Second is the nature of faith. What is faith like? What does it look like? And then the third one is the application of faith. The application of faith. So let's dive in. Um, if you want to look with me, we're going to look first at verses 1 through 8. Um, and this is, the big idea in this is that Paul is saying that faith is counted as righteousness. So remember that question that I asked at the beginning? What would you consider, you know, if somebody asked if you were to die right now, what answer would you give? I want to start looking at those answers, right? We, we said some people say, yes, I'll, when I die and I go before, yes, I'll be in heaven because I'm a pretty good person, right? I, my good outweighs my bad, right? Well, that whole idea stems from the idea that I can do good things in order to merit or earn before God. And Paul talks about this here. Right. If you look in verse four with me, he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right. And so this would be great, except that we can't do anything that is truly good. We've learned from Romans one all the way through three that what we consider to be good is actually when we get a clear view of ourselves, we we find out how selfish it really is. You see, good actions aren't merely external ones, but they're also about the motive of our heart. And you see, often the motive of our heart is to do good things that we might get the reward, rather than actually doing good things as, a, as an act of thankfulness to God. To God, because he is a source from all things happen. And so we can't do anything that is good to earn or to merit salvation. And so it's the same thing. We've talked about this, but, but a judge, he doesn't stand and look at somebody and say, well, listen, I know that you've done some good things, and so I'm just going to let you go. And that merits, you know, you being excused for murder, right? Or for stealing or for, no, a good judge holds people to account, right? They, they hold them and they say, no, listen, you might have done these things, but you're still guilty. And so the problem is that none of us, all of us are guilty. And so none of us can do good works that excuse the guilt that we have. None of us. Right? Answer, so this doesn't work, right? That answer is out. Like, that just, that, I'm sorry, that's not going to get you there. God's going to look and say, well, you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in yourself. And so, you've never trusted in me. You've never given me your life. Second, be yes, because I have tried to be a good Christian. Once again, this answer is a form of works righteousness, right? Because what it says, it says, listen, I'm trusting in my ability to do. What, what really is my assurance, what really grounds me is that if I can do all the things that God has said, then of course I'm a Christian. But you see, we don't. None of us do. None of us can stand before God and say, listen, I've obeyed your law completely. I love people perfectly. I'm really humble and I'm generous with everything I have. All of us, when we stand before, we get a true look at ourselves. When we really see in the mirror, we all see that we don't. And so if your if your assurance of salvation, if you stand before God and you say, listen, it's about my ability to perform what you've told me, then all of us are going to fall short. And it's a trust in ourselves. It's a work salvation. Let's look at, at number C. It says, yes, because I believe in God and try to do his will. Right? Now, this is a form. There's, there's one part of this is right, right? It says, I believe in God. But then it says, I, and try to do his will. The big part of this is saying, Listen, yeah, we should seek to do his will. We should seek to do these things. But to say that I'm established before him by doing his will is wrong, right? It's once again, it's faith plus works equal salvation. And that's not how it, that's not how it operates because we don't contribute anything. Once again, our, 
our works are not good enough to where we contribute to God's salvation that he gives. Now, imagine it's like a tree, right? The roots are faith, right? And as the roots grow deeper, the tree grows taller and it produces the fruit of good works, right? The apple tree, the apples on the apple tree don't make the tree grow. It's a sign that it is growing, and so that's, that's the same thing with us is that it's not faith plus works equals salvation, right? It's faith is our salvation, which then leads to good works, which then leads to good works, right? And this is, this is number D. It says, yes, I believe in God with all of my heart. Now, this seems right. When we read this, it seems, yeah, you know, this seems exactly like I, I believe in God with all of my heart. But this, this answer it has a view of faith which isn't really biblical. Now what this view says, it says, listen, I have faith, which is this virtue that I produce, and I come to God and I say, God, let's make a trade. I'll give you faith and you give me righteousness. You see, that's not the biblical idea at all. Faith isn't something where we we credit and we work up enough faith to then give to God, and then God says, oh, well, look at, look at how strong your faith is. Look at how hard you've worked to produce this, this good faith. Now let me just give you righteousness. This isn't at all the idea that Paul has in this, right? Because what he's saying here is that his, his faith, they're trusting in their own faith. They're not trusting in God, but they're trusting in their own ability to have faith. And this is going to destroy you. I don't know if you've had this, but, but at times I have. Like you, your reassurance is found in your strength and your ability to even trust God. But what happens when you go through something hard? What happens when your faith begins to wane? What happens when you begin to weaken? then your assurance of salvation falls out. You see, our, our assurance is in God. It's in believing him, right? Not in our own ability to believe, not in our own ability to hold on, right? And so this leads to, to the, the, the truest expression of a heart attitude that trusts and believes. It says, yes, I trust God and believe his promise to save me by grace alone through Christ. And so what this answer says, it says, listen, it's, it's only by trusting his promise. It's only by trusting and believing in him and by Christ and by sheer grace that I am saved. And this is what he talks about in verse 5, right? He says, and to the one who does not work, who does not work, right? He doesn't say who does some work and then believes. He says who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted, counted as righteousness. That word count is extremely important, right? Different translations have it as counted, credited, reckoned. Some even, some even translate it as imputed, right? The word is legizomai, and what it means is it's a financial term, right? It's, an, it's a credit term. And so the idea is, is that all of us come to God and we are in debt. We are in debt beyond what we can believe, Right beyond anything that we could ever pay, and and God comes along and He says, "Listen, I'm going to take away your debt. I'm going to credit you, right? And so, say you come and we owe twenty million dollars, you know, something beyond what we could ever pay, and God comes and He takes that debt upon Himself, right? He comes and He and He gives that and He takes it upon Himself. So, so our sin is reckoned to God; it's counted to God's account." But it's not just that. God then, God then counts righteousness to our account. So it's not just that God takes away our debt, but God adds a positive balance on our account. 
he adds a positive balance on our account. Right? And this is, this is exactly what he's talking about with Abraham and with David. Right? Because he's arguing. Paul here is arguing with Jews. Have you ever, have you ever been in an argument with somebody? Right? You get in an argument and what do you do? You start, you just pull out your sources. Right? You start saying, well, so and so says this. They side with me. You know, and you start kind of thinking about who's on your side. Right? That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, listen, right? You wanna, you wanna see who's on whose side, Jews? Like, Father Abraham's on my side. King David's on my side. And so he goes back and he says, listen, the whole testament sides with me, so you lose. Right? I mean, he's doing a little bit more of a humble posture than that. But basically his, basically his argument is, look, the Old Testament shows that this is true. And he, he, he cites Genesis 15, 6, right? Which says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he quotes David in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And King David, right, who is this epitome of faith, who killed Goliath, right, steps up in faith, kills Goliath, you know, who goes out and is obedient, is a man after God's own heart, but yet we see his life is riddled with sin. He quotes him, right, and what what does David say? He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin now this is huge this idea is the foundation of of faith this is this is the foundation of christianity is that what he's talking about here is he's talking about a trust transfer a trust transfer is he says listen you have been putting your trust in yourself you've been putting your trust in your abilities and your performance and he says the the basis of salvation is that you transfer your trust entirely All of your trust ceases to be in you, and it then gets put upon God. And it says, I trust him. I believe in him. And it's not just that you believe that a God exists, right? It's you believe specifically what he has said to you. You trust his promise. Tim Keller says this about it. He says, knowing the blessing of credited righteousness is the only way to be liberated to view yourself truly. Without it, we will either ignore the truth that God is righteous and that he will only accept the righteous life, or we will be crushed by that truth. We will ignore, excuse, or despair at our transgressions. But if we have saving faith, we can be real about ourselves, about our flaws and failings, and we can pick ourselves up when we do fail because we know the blessing of being sinners whose sins are not counted against us. Sinners who are righteous. Do you see the good news here? Is it only, only when you make a trust transfer, only when you put the whole weight of your trust in your life upon God, can you actually be free to be yourself? Can you actually live a life of freedom? Because your identity no longer is on your performance, but it's on God's. And so you can be free to admit your sin. You can be free to confess it because guess what? You're no longer identified by your sin. You're identified by his grace. That is the basis of saving faith is that there's a trust transfer at the heart of it. Faith is the means of being made right with God. Faith is the means of being made right with God. Nothing else. He transitions here. Paul transitions in verse 9. And he starts talking about that faith is what precedes everything else, right? And we kind of got that idea in the, in the previous passage, right? That faith is what precedes obedience, not obedience preceding faith. 
And he, he makes this argument again because the Jews came and they said, well, listen, God is really the God of the Jews because Abraham, Father Abraham, was circumcised, right? And, and circumcision was a, as Paul says, a sign and a seal, right? God made covenant with Abraham and as a sign of the covenant, as a sign of the, of the, the loyalty and the friendship and the, and the relationship between them, Abraham was circumcised in his flesh to demonstrate that. And so the Jews argued and they said, well, God's the God of the Jews because people have to be circumcised, you know? So once again, saying that you have to do something and then you also have to place faith, right? Faith plus works equals salvation. And Paul argues against that, right? He argues against that. He goes and he says, how was it counted to him? How was righteousness counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, Right? It was before Abraham was circumcised. And basically what he's doing is saying, okay, let's do a Bible study, guys. Let's open up. Let's, let's see. Well, Genesis 15 is where God credits Abraham righteousness by faith. Genesis 17 is where Abraham is circumcised. What came after the other? Right? Genesis 15 obviously precedes Genesis 17. And so he says, listen, righteousness was imputed by faith. And then circumcision came along and it was the sign and the seal of of the faith that Abraham had, right? And a sign, right? When you think of, you come out to our church, you see that there's a sign outside and it demonstrates who we are. It marks, it shows that we are a church, right? And it has those things. Now, a seal, when we think of a seal, you know, I think of a stamp. You know, you have something that comes and it seals and it does two things. One, it it makes it permanent. It means that it can't be broken. And the stronger the seal, right? The stronger the person that seals it, the more permanent it is but also it shows authority, right? When a seal is given, it shows who is the person that sealed it. It demonstrates who it is. And so he says, listen, circumcision came to be a sign and a seal, right? And for us, we don't hold that circumcision is a sign or seal, but as Christians, we believe that baptism is what it is, right? That we place our faith in, in Jesus, and then baptism is the next step in our faith, right? We walk that out. It leads us naturally to be baptized because baptism shows to the world It is the sign to everyone that would look. And it says, listen, I am a follower of Jesus. I follow Christ. And then it also is a seal, and it shows that we have been saved. Right? It's a sign and a seal of our salvation. Now, the big big deal with this passage is, once again, works righteousness is exclusive. Right? Works righteousness, if I am working to earn my salvation, it is very exclusive. And that's what the Jews believed, is that only the Jews would be saved because, right, they, they have the scriptures, they've been circumcised. And Paul says, Abraham was circumcised after he was actually counted righteous while he was a Gentile. Abraham was a Gentile. Abraham wasn't a Jew when he was credited righteousness, right? And so the big deal about this is that it makes Abraham the father of everyone who believe, everyone who would believe. If you believe that you're saved by your good works, then you're always going to find less and less people that you can have and be together with because they're going to have imperfections, they're going to have flaws, and you're going to begin to separate yourself more and more and more because they're just not as holy as you. They're just not as good as you. And so you see, when you start adding works to your salvation, unity disappears. You become very, very exclusive in the wrong way, right? Is that nobody's able to really be with you because you find all these excuses, You see, Christ died and covered all sin, and he credits all righteousness who would believe and trust in him. 
And so Christianity is extremely inclusive. And it, listen, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter your religious upbringing. It doesn't matter if you were born in the church or you haven't stepped foot in church in you know, 40 years. It doesn't matter if you were born another ethnicity or you were born another religion. Right? It doesn't matter what you've done, your past, how bad of a sinner you think you are, or how good of a person you think you are. Right? Salvation is open to all. It is open to everyone who would come and who would believe in Christ, who would place their trust in him alone. The basis is very inclusive. Christianity is extremely inclusive, and this means faith is the means. Faith is the means to be made right with God. Now, the last section here is verses 13 through 17. Verses 13 through 17. And this, Paul's argument, is faith is the means to the promise. Right? Faith is the means to the promise. So, in the Old Testament, um, when God called Abraham, he promised him things. Right? The, we're going to do a, a very, very brief Old Testament summary. Right? God creates all things. He speaks everything in existence. He creates Adam and Eve. They sin. They fall away. Right? Then you have a whole line with Cain and Abel and then Noah, right? And so you see God is working through and then God creates, you know, Abraham is born and God comes to him and he says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to redeem what was broken. And so God uses Abraham to be this, this redemption, right? And, and seeks to use him to, to show his grace and his goodness to the world. And he makes these promises to Abraham, right? He promises Abraham that he's going to have descendants that are more numerous than the stars, Right? He promises that he's going to go into the land of Canaan. Right? He, he's going to go into the land of Canaan. He's going to conquer the land. He's going to submit the land. And the land is going to be subdued underneath him. And then he also he promises that through his seed, through his offspring, all nations in the entire world are going to be blessed. All nations in the entire world are going to be blessed. And so he promises these things to Abraham. He promises them. Right? And that was 430 years after the law. Right? So you have Abraham... And then you have a lot of his descendants, and then they go into Egypt, right? And they're captured in Egypt, and then Moses comes, and Moses is given the law, right? God's promise to Abraham, and then God giving the law to Moses are 430 years apart. It's a long time. And what he's arguing, he's saying, listen, your blessing doesn't come through obeying and doing good works. It comes through believing the promises that God has, has given to you. And he, he does this, he's, he, he puts these in different categories, law, transgression, wrath, those terms go together, right? He's, he's making an argument from language, and he says, faith, promise, grace, heirs, these terms go together. Something can either be given to us by the law or by promise, but not simultaneously, not simultaneously. John Stott puts it like this, God's law makes demands which we transgress, and so we incur wrath. God's grace makes promises which we believe, and so we receive blessing. Thus, law, obedience, transgression, and wrath belong to one category of thinking, while grace, promise, faith, and blessing, another. And so you see, these two, two lines of thinking are different. Faith in the promise is what precedes our obedience and fulfillment of the law. Faith in his promise. Do you believe what God has promised? Do you trust it? So we've seen 
a lot in those first 17 verses, right? We've seen that faith is what precedes um, and is the priority for all of our actions as Christians. Faith is the root, it is the ground, right? The foundation upon which everything else is built. Now he, he changes in verse 17a. If you look with me, it talks about the nature of faith, right? And so he looks at the nature of faith. What is faith like? And he looks at Abraham. He says, we're going to look at Abraham, Father Abraham, for an example of what faith looks like. And so there's four things real quick that I want to run through about when we look at Father Abraham and what his faith was like. The first thing that we see with Abraham is that he knew that God, that the reality is greater than how we feel or how things appear. Right? He knew that the reality of things is greater than how he feels or how things appear. Can you imagine? God calls Abraham to a land that he had no idea about. He calls him out of his whole family. And he goes and he leaves. God calls him to go and to, you know, he's gonna, he promises that he's going to have a descendant. You know, descendants are going to be more numerous than stars. And he doesn't have a single one. God promises that. And for almost 20 years, he doesn't have a single descendant. He doesn't have anybody, and God's promising that, right? And so what does he do? He, he realizes that the reality of things are bigger than his circumstances, that how things appear are not really the truest indicator of how things actually are. And man, we have to hear that because often what happens is we're swallowed up by our circumstances. You know, bills are high, people around us have died, we're hurting you know, our sin has overcome us, and we feel like we can't get out. And over and over again, we just give in. And we think that how things appear are how things are. And we have to learn. We have to step back and say, no, that's not true. That's not true. There's a reality that's bigger than how we feel or how things appear. The second thing that we learn is that we need to focus on facts about God. Right? Why is it that Abraham was able to, to realize that things aren't as they appear? It's because he knew who God was. Right? Only when you have an understanding of God's character, only when you really believe that God is powerful enough to change things and he's faithful enough to where he knows what's best, will you actually trust him? Will you actually be able to get through circumstances? Right? And, and he says it here. He goes, listen, God is powerful enough because he created everything from nothing, right? This is both when he spoke the world into existence, but also in Abraham's life, right? Sarah was barren. Sarah could not bear children. And God brought about life from a hundred year old man and a 90 year old woman, right? He, he sees possibility where we see only impossibility. He can bring about life from nothing. And from that one thing, God brought an entire nation. God brought about an entire nation of people through that one promise you know, it's not like this, but he also raises the dead. He raises the dead. And we see this, right? I mean, from Sarah's womb, her womb was dead, and God brought life into it. God brought life into it. And this is the truth for everyone that believes in Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life, right? That he comes, and when he comes, he brings new life. He brings new life, right? And so we need to, we need to focus on facts about God. You see, faith and reason are not separate. You know, I, I talk to people and they say a lot, well, listen, I just, I can't really have faith because I'm, uh, you know, I believe in logic and I believe in reason. Do you understand that faith is not anti-rational? Faith is actually extremely rational. It's just super rational. What that means is it where, where reason stops, faith continues, right? And so reason, reason gives a basis and gives an understanding because 
what you're, what we're commanded here is, is we're told, listen, when you're facing circumstances, don't just stop thinking. Don't just go and think that faith is empty optimism because it's not. Faith isn't just an empty optimism about life. What it is, is it's thinking about the facts, right? So when your circumstances hit, when life comes in the middle of those things, you need to stop and you need to think. You need to think about God. You need to think about who he is and what he can do. And it's because of that thinking that it will change your circumstances, right? It will change you in the midst of them. It will change how you react to them. It will change your attitude and perspective from within. So it's not, it's not anti-rational, but it goes beyond reason. It goes beyond our rational because we trust, right? Faith is conviction. It's, it's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so faith goes beyond reason. It's not anti-reason. The next thing we see from Father Abraham is that we need to trust the bare word of God. Right? Abraham believed when there was no, like he, he couldn't get any kind of basis for it, right? He says, God tells him, listen, I'm going to use you and through your descendants, they're going to be more numerous than the stars. Yet Abraham for 20 years didn't see a single one. Can you imagine what that's like telling people, well, God's promised me this, but nothing happens for 20 years, right? He goes against and he believes God's word when everything else seems to stand against it. Are we willing to stand upon God's word? Are we willing to believe his promise even then when everything in us and everybody around us doubts and says, you're a fool? How could you believe that? We need to have a trust in God to where we can believe his word or we can act on obedience in it or we believe and trust him. And the last thing that we learn from, from Abraham from this passage is that we're called to persevere. We're called to persevere in the end. right? He, he says here that Abraham didn't waver or wander in his faith, but when you go back and when you read Genesis, it seemed like he kind of, he did in some senses, right? I mean, you know, you see Abraham journeying through and because he doesn't want to be killed, he tells, you know, the people in charge that his wife is really his sister and just only his sister. You know, you see that God promised him that, that he would have descendants and he didn't believe that it would be through Sarah and so he went to her maidservant, right? And so he tried to bring about God's promise by his own ability, and so you see that there are times where Abraham did doubt. There are times where Abraham did, did you know, waver. But what this is talking about, it says, listen, the whole tenure of his life was one of faith. His life, even though there were doubts, even though there were bumps, he continued to throw himself on, upon God's goodness. He continued to trust. He continued to put faith in, in God's ability. And so listen, though you might doubt, though you might have times of struggle, you need to understand that, that God is bigger than those things. And listen, while you doubt, search it out. Seek those things. Trust God. He is bigger than our doubts. He's bigger than our insecurities. And he will move and use these things to bring about deeper faith. And you see it. While Abraham early in his life doubted, what happens? He's a father and he's the example because he sacrificed his son. He believed God. And it says in Hebrews, it says, while he's going to sacrifice Isaac, God calls him to sacrifice his son to him. Abraham goes and he says, listen, we will go up to worship and we will return down. And, and in the book of Hebrews, it says that Abraham believed that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Even if God led Abraham to kill Isaac, God would raise him from the dead because God is trustworthy to his promises. And so he believed, he persevered. You see such a massive difference from the insecurity and that towards the end of his life, that if we learn from our experiences, are we learning, like, are we learning from our experiences, our faith growing or do we continue to doubt the same things? Do we not believe that God is who he is, even though he's proved himself time after time after time? We persevere in faith. We believe. Continue to grow in faith. So the last thing, the application of faith, right? How do we apply this? What are some practical points for us to apply this? 
Um, the first thing I want to remark is I want to ask, how do we see Jesus in this passage? Right? Because what good does a sermon do if Jesus isn't the point? <laughs> Not a lot. And so I want to read a couple ways that we see Jesus in this passage where he is the epitome and the source of our faith. The first one is that I see Jesus and that he alone was justified before the Father by his work. Jesus alone was the one who did good. He was alone the one who sought God. And so it was because of his ability to do good works that we are able to stand before the Father. Jesus comes and he says, listen, I will make an exchange. I will take your evil work upon myself and I will give you my perfect work. And it's through faith that that transfer happens. It's through belief. Second way I see Jesus, I see Jesus and that on the cross he bore all people's sin. Jesus bore all people's sin regardless of their moral ability or their lack of moral ability. Jesus died for all people that all might come to him. He loves all. The third is that I see Jesus and Abraham's example of faith. You see, while Abraham trusted God but wavered, Jesus trusted God perfectly. While Abraham was justified, Jesus was cast off and condemned. Jesus, though trusted the Father perfectly, was cast off for us who waver in our faith and doubt that we might come and we might hold on to him who is trustworthy, him who has perfect faith. I see Jesus and that Jesus is the source of what Abraham believed. You see, Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. Right? God spoke everything into existence through Christ. In Colossians 1.16, he talks about this. Jesus is, is the one that for whom and through whom and to whom are all things. He is the purpose, the source, the beginning and the end of all things. Next, I see that Jesus is the true heir of Abraham who inherited the earth. And he reigns presently as king and lord. And this is what he says in, in verse 24. He says, It will be count us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Right? Our Lord. Jesus is the seed of Abraham that comes to inherit the earth. Right? And it's through belief in him that we can also inherit the earth. He is the righteous one who reigns justly. He is Lord of all. He is the king. So how do we respond? How do we respond to God's faith? First, I want to ask, what are you what are you struggling with right now? So in your life, what do you struggle with? What is it if we had time alone, you would open up and you'd say, Trevor, you know, like this is just really on my heart. This just seems to be really painful. I just can't seem to get through this. You know, if I'm really honest and I take off the mask of pretending like everything's okay, this is what really is holding me back. This is what really is grabbing me. What is it for you? Might I encourage you to ask, what is it that you're not believing about God that continues to allow that to happen? Because you see, the source of our problems is that we're not considering God enough. We don't really believe his character is because some part of our trust is still relying upon us and our ability and who we think we are rather than considering who God is. And so, what is it that you're not believing about God that continues to lead to the same things? How do we grow in our faith, right? How do we grow in our faith to overcome these things? Part of it is it's a process. God is the one that moves and works in and through us. But there's several things that we can do to, to grow our faith, right? He says the first one is that we need to study. We need to know about God more, right? It was... Bill said something in, in Bible study that really stuck with me. And, uh, and he talked about, we were asking, 
times where you trust people and, and why you trust people and why you don't. And he said, listen, I didn't trust this doctor to operate in surgery because he had a bad report because I didn't know his character, right? But he said, finally, I was forced to trust him because of the direness of my situation. And then I also learned more about his character. Do you understand the more you study, the more you understand about your own character, your own heart, and the more you study and you understand about God, the more you will trust him, the more you rely upon him. And so do you know God? Not intellectually, but you do really know him. Do you study about him through his word, through books? Do you meditate on it? Study God, learn about him. And the next thing is act in obedience to his promises. Do you see, oftentimes we, we, we intellectualize things, we rationalize things, and we push them off at arm's length. You see, the way to grow in your faith is to act on it. It's a life of faith. It's a journey of faith. And we grow in it through continuing to act and obey the promises that God has given to us. And so what is it that God would have you to obey right here and right now? What is it that you know as I'm even speaking that God is telling you, obey this, walk in this, trust this? Can I tell you that there's freedom in that? There's freedom in simple obedience to God's promises. Obey him. Remember that faith is the means of being made right with God. Faith is the means of being made right with God, nothing else. Pray with me now. Father, we thank you that you love us. Thank you that um, while we could not earn before your sight, you instead came and graciously gave. God, I pray that you would humble us and that you would encourage us with your love. I pray for your people. God, I pray for those that perhaps don't know you. I pray that you would help them to make a trust transfer that in this moment, they would see themselves clearly. They would see their own heart, their own inability. God, would you, would you graciously in your love reveal their own inability? And would you lead them to your grace to trust you, that you are good, that you alone set us free, God, that all the things that we think bring freedom instead enslave us, but you alone set us free. I pray for us, Lord, as your, as your people. I pray that you would help us to once again understand that our faith doesn't rest in our own ability, whether it's our strength and virtue of faith or whether it's, whether it's our good works, but instead our faith rests solely and, and surely upon you. Remind us of this over and over and over again, God, for we, we forget. We love you, Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.